Following Jesus means seeking sacrificial service, not worldly status. And to do that, you need spiritual sight. What can I do for you? It's a question we all love to hear, isn't it? I know for me, when I walk into a store, when I call a customer service number, or I go into a restaurant and I hear that question, it just makes my day, right? You just get all warm and fuzzy inside. You feel like Mary must have felt after she sees Jesus after the resurrection. You just feel like something amazing has happened. Like somebody's asking me what they can do for me. It's incredible, right? Because we don't hear that question often enough, do we? So it's always pleasantly surprising. Like, like really? You know, how we answer that question says a lot about our relationship to the person asking, doesn't it? And it says a lot about ourselves, right? What we desire most in life. And that's especially true if it's Jesus who's the one that asks that question to us. And how we answer that question to Jesus makes all the difference. That's exactly what we'll see in our passage this morning. We're going to hear Jesus ask that same question, what do you want me to do for you? He's going to ask it two different times to different people. And we're going to see two very different responses. And one of which is going to teach us a lot about true discipleship. So if you haven't already, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. If you're not familiar with the Gospel of Mark, it's one of four eyewitness accounts that we have in the Bible of the life and ministry of Jesus, the Messiah. And Mark has three major sections. So chapters 1 to 8 are about who Jesus is. Who Jesus is. Chapters 8 to 10 are about Jesus' mission, what it means to follow him. And chapters 11 to 16 are about Jesus fulfilling his mission. So our passage today in Mark 10 is kind of in that middle section about Jesus' mission, what it means to follow him, what true discipleship looks like. And one of the main things Mark teaches about true discipleship is that following Jesus doesn't lead to immediate glory in this life. No, it leads to humble, sacrificial service of others in this life. So here in Mark chapter 10, Jesus is going to teach that truth one last time before he enters Jerusalem to accomplish his mission of dying and rising for sinners. And as he teaches this, we'll see his disciples are still spiritually blind, right? They're still continuing to seek worldly status. But by contrast, we'll see a blind man not only gain physical sight, but also the spiritual sight that the disciples lack. So we're going to read the story as we go along, but first, here's what I think the main idea is that God wants us to see from this story. So if you're taking notes, 
The main idea, I think, is something like this. Following Jesus means seeking sacrificial service, not worldly status. Following Jesus means seeking sacrificial service, not worldly status. And to do that, you need spiritual sight. Sacrificially serve others and not seek worldly status, you need spiritual sight. So we're going to consider that main idea and kind of two points that follow the two scenes of this part of the chapter. So point number one is sacrificial service. Sacrificial service, that's verses 32 to 45. And point number two is spiritual sight. Spiritual sight, that's verses 46 to 52. So point number one, sacrificial service. Look with me at verse 32. And the disciples were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they, the disciples, were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. So picture the scene here, okay? We, we got Jesus, the true king, right? He's, he's on his way to fulfill his mission, his face set like flint toward Jerusalem, that's why I think he's walking ahead of his disciples, right? He's not trailing uh, off the back in fear of what's to come or second-guessing whether he should go. No, no, he's determined. He's leading the way like the good shepherd that he is. And behind him, we got his 12 disciples, right? And then behind and around them are other Jews kind of making their way up to Jerusalem like they did every year to celebrate the Passover, which, if you remember, that's the time Jesus is going to be sacrificed as the Passover lamb. And I love here what, what verse 32 says. You know, the 12 are amazed while the other people around are afraid. Well, why are the 12 amazed? Because they think Jesus is about to overthrow the Romans, right? And free the Jews from centuries of Roman oppression, right? So they're, they're hyped up. They're walking behind Jesus like, do you want a revolution? Like, who's going to follow? They're, like, they're hyping everybody. They're into this. Right? They expect Jesus to kind of show up like a pro wrestler, right? You, you ever watch pro wrestling? They show up, the fireworks are going, they rip their shirt off, and then they're just picking each other up and throwing people on tables and breaking chairs over people's heads. Like, that's what they want Jesus to do to the Romans in Jerusalem. They want to take back the holy city and bring in God's kingdom. And so they're here for it, man. They are hyped. And that's exactly why the other people watching are afraid. They see this, they see Jesus walking determined, his boys getting behind him, hyped, and to them that looks like revolt. It looks like revolt. And they remember what happened the last time that some Jews tried to overthrow the Romans a couple hundred years earlier in the Maccabean revolt. That did not end well for the Jews. So the crowds are afraid, the disciples are pumped. And Jesus sees this. He knows that they're not far from the city now, so he takes his 12 aside. And for a third time in Mark, he tells them what's really going to go down when they get to Jerusalem. Because he knows the last two times haven't sunk in yet. Right? It, it just goes in one ear and out the other of, dis of the disciples. So look at verse 33. Jesus says, Look, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. 
And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. You can almost picture the disciples' hype kind of fizzle into blank stares. Jesus makes it more clear than ever that they're not marching into battle against Rome. Yes, he's going to bring in God's kingdom, but not the way that they think or want. No, for his kingdom to come, it's suffering first, then glory. It's not just straight to glory. But like us, the disciples, they have thick skulls, right? They, They still don't get it. Look at verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? You can see what's happening, right? These two brothers, James and John, they catch Jesus away from the other ten disciples. Not to console him, right? Not not to ask how he's feeling because he just told them he's going to die soon. Right? That would be the caring thing to do if they really cared about Jesus. No, no, they don't ask that. They only care about themselves. We want you to do whatever we ask. That's definitely more of a demand than a request. See, they think the kingdom's about to come, and they want to secure their seats on Jesus' advisory cabinet. And, you know, Jesus' response is surprising. He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't say, how dare you demand whatever you want from me? You know who I am? Right? He doesn't shoot down their request. He doesn't say, uh, I already know what you guys are going to ask for, and it's a hard no. No, instead he says, what do you want me to do for you? It's the same question I asked in my intro. What, what can I do for you? We're kind of thinking when we read that, you know, Jesus, why are you even entertaining their request? Like, don't you know they're just trying to take advantage of you? Yeah. Yeah, he knows. Yeah, I think he responds this way because he loves them. He's patiently teaching them the kind of question they should be asking to understand true discipleship. Right? They should be asking, what can I do for you? But instead they ask, what can you do for me? And in verse... 37, they tell Jesus what they want. They say, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. You know, again, more of a demand than a request. But notice when they finally say what they want, they make it sound like it's really about Jesus and not about them. Did you notice that? Grant us to sit at your right and your left and in your glory. Right? G- give us glory, Jesus. I mean, of course, it's your glory, but we want it. Now, to be clear, they're they're not talking about heavenly glory here. They're they're talking about earthly glory. Matthew's gospel makes that clear. Matthew chapter 20 has the same account, but in there it says, they say, grant us to sit at your right and left in your kingdom. In your kingdom. It's earthly glory in, in their minds. The earthly kings had seats next to their throne, right, for for their highest officials to sit in. That's what James and John want, right? They want to be the first to claim these highest positions of honor before anyone else can. Now, when we read this, we tend to feel shocked at their boldness, right? 
like, how can they make such a selfish demand from Jesus? Jesus recently told them, up in verse 31, the first will be last. So, like, did they already forget that? Like, what are they thinking? But I actually think, in their minds, their request makes total sense. I mean, think about it. James and John are Jesus' cousins, right? Their mom, Salome, is Jesus' aunt. So they're related to the king. Plus, they're already in Jesus' inner circle, right? It's the three, Peter, James, and John. And they were the only ones beside Peter to see Jesus transfigured in his glory. So in their minds, them getting glory is a no-brainer, right? (laughs) It's like, it's already down to us and Peter. We can just cut Peter out, right? He's a big boy. He can take it. We'll be good. Ouch. You ever look in the mirror of God's word and just go, You don't like what you see because you see yourself. We're just like James and John, aren't we? We either miss or just plain ignore what Jesus tells us in his word over and over and over again. We think and do the exact things he says not to. We expect or even demand Jesus promote us over others, all while rationalizing our selfishness. Well, you know, I I know this person, so that makes me special. Or I have this experience, so I really deserve to be exalted. You know, years later, James wrote a letter, and in chapter 4 of that letter, he says, You ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives to satisfy your own selfish desires. You know, it makes you wonder if James had this very scene in mind when he wrote that. He's thinking about how he asked Jesus selfishly with wrong motives. It's exactly what James and John are doing and what we often do. Asking things of God with selfish motives. Concealing our demands of God in pious language. Brothers and sisters, What might you be asking of God with wrong motives, as a veiled demand instead of a humble request? Is your concern really Jesus' honor or your own? How might you be seeing others, even other followers of Jesus, as competition to get ahead of? Do you only ask God for good things for you or also for others, even if it means that others get that good thing over you? Verse 38, James and John are holding their breath, waiting to hear Jesus say yes, but Jesus lets them down slow. He says, you don't know what you're asking. Jesus is in complete control here. He knows their pride. He knows they don't realize what taking the throne actually involves, that it involves suffering first. So he guides the conversation that way. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? or to be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized? Now, what's this language of cup and baptism? Well, they're symbols. They're symbols from the Old Testament of God's judgment against sin. So in Isaiah 51, it talks about the Messiah drinking the cup of God's judgment. 
Baptism, too, is a picture of being immersed in the waters of God's judgment. Just like the world was immersed in Noah's flood or the Egyptians were immersed in the Red Sea. So don't miss Jesus' argument. He's, he's saying if you want to go up to glory, first you've got to go down through suffering. In God's kingdom, the way up is down. But I don't think James and John get the metaphor, right? Because in verse 39, they say, we're able. We are able. Now, that seems foolish to us when we first read that, but to their credit, I want to give them a little credit. I think James and John are showing a bit of courage here, even if it's misguided. See, I think they know they could die by following Jesus, and they're willing to. But again, they think they're about to go to war with Rome. That's why they're willing to die, for for earthly glory. They still don't understand that their death will be for the gospel, not earthly glory, which is what Jesus says next. He says, the cup that I drink, you will drink, and the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. Now, he's not saying their death is going to atone for sinners like his will, but he's saying, you're going to share in my sufferings for the gospel's sake which we know came true, right? John ends up being exiled for the rest of his life on the island of Patmos, Revelation 1 says. And James, his brother, he was killed by Herod in Acts 12. So this comes true. Jesus goes on in verse 40. He says, But to sit at my right hand or my left, it's not mine to grant. Rather, it's for those for whom it has been prepared. In other words, I didn't come to work that out. God has already worked that out. You see how Jesus confronts their selfish ambition, right? They're seeking status, and instead he holds out to them suffering and sovereignty. Suffering and sovereignty. You want the crown, he says? First, you've got to take up your cross, suffering. And trust God has prepared your reward in heaven, so you don't need to fight over it on earth. Sovereignty. But of course, that's not what James and John want to hear, right? And and none of this is what the other disciples want to hear. Because if you look at verse 41, the other ten, they become indignant at James and John. They are fuming. Now, do you think they're righteously angry? That James and John would be so selfish, that they're not caring about Jesus? You think that's why they're angry? No. No. No, they're angry because they want those seats of honor for themselves. They're angry that James and John just beat them to the punch. It's like when one of my daughters is trying to get something she shouldn't and my other daughter gets angry. It's not because she sees her sister doing something wrong or dangerous. It's because she's jealous, right? She wants that thing too. So Instead of coming to me, they start fighting and suddenly they're climbing over each other to try to get that thing. Parents, you know this. Jesus says that, sees the same thing is about to happen with his disciples. So in verse 42, he again patiently teaches them. He says, you know how the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant." And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus is saying to them and to us, guys, there's a way that status works in the world, and then there's a way that status works in God's kingdom. The world's rulers, who, who Jesus kind of mocks here, he says those who are considered rulers, right? They're, they're great ones. They use their status to serve themselves. But that's not true greatness. No, he says whoever wants to be truly great must be servants, even slaves. Jesus uses the lowest status in the world's eyes to make his point. Right? What is a slave? A slave is all about the needs of others, namely their master. They have to put others' needs above their own by nature of their position. So Jesus says, you need to become like that. But we who follow Jesus, we do that willingly. We willingly put others' needs above our own. We should be all about the needs of others. Now that teaching is shocking enough, right, by itself. But don't miss two other shocking things here. Jesus doesn't condemn wanting to be first. Do you see that? He doesn't say it's bad to want greatness. Nor does he condemn authority. Right? He doesn't say, in my kingdom, there's no pursuing greatness and no exercising authority. No, no, no. There is a place for authority and greatness in God's kingdom. It's just if you exercise authority, Jesus says, don't do it like unbelievers. And if you want to be great, go for it, Jesus says. Just do it by serving others, not yourself. That's true greatness. That's how you be first. Service over status. And friends, that's a necessary reminder for us, right? Ambition drive to, to excel and be great, that, that's not the problem. It's what our sin does with it that's the problem. Right? We should work hard and achieve things and excel. We should do things with excellence to the glory of God. But we can spend so much time and energy and resources achieving education and wealth and skills and connections and success and yet fail to serve others with any of it. You like the disciples, we can in pride jockey for position over others and cause strife in the process. We can get sinfully angry when others go after something that we want. It's the same with authority. Authority is a good gift from God. God has put authority structures in the world for human flourishing. Authority isn't the problem. It's what our sin does with it. That's the problem. We can forget that any authority we have comes from God. We're ultimately accountable to Him. But what do we do? We often boast about our position or use those under us for our own gain instead of looking to their interests above ours. You know, any authority we have, we should use for good to serve others. So let me ask, husbands, do you just demand things of your wife? Or do you sacrificially serve her? Parents, do you see your kids as a barrier to your own ambitions? Or do you put their needs above your own? Bosses, do you use employees under you just to make you money and make you look good? Or do you try to develop them and 
see them succeed as well. Teachers, do you teach students just to follow your ways and your thoughts? Or do you teach them how to think critically for themselves and follow God's ways and his thoughts? How about church leaders? Right? All this applies in ministry just as much as anywhere else, right? It's interesting, the, the word for lord it over that Jesus uses here in Mark 10, it's the same word for domineer. It means domineer. It's the same word Peter uses in 1 Peter 5. Luke read this earlier. When he tells church leaders not to domineer over those in their charge. You know, and given this occasion today of installing a new elder, I think it's worth us just reading that passage again really quick in 1 Peter 5. So I'm just going to read it again. Starting in verse 1, he says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering, there's that word, over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Cast all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You know, I wonder if when Peter wrote that, he too had this scene from Mark 10 in his mind. It has all the same themes, doesn't it? Not domineering over others. Having humility, right? Putting yourself last. Suffering first, then God exalting you to glory. So WSBC elders and myself, this is our charge our joy, our privilege. There are so many ways that we can misuse spiritual authority. May we remember that we'll have to give an answer for every sheep that we've cared for. And may we be found faithful in the end by God's grace. You know, but Peter's words aren't just for church leaders. If you were listening, they're also for all members. He says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. None of us should seek status over service. None of us should domineer over others. Now, if you're wondering what it looks like to be domineering, I just want to take a minute. I'm going to give you just a list of examples. You can write any down that may apply to you, or you can listen back to the recording later and get them all. So here are just a few examples. 
Domineering can look like creating an atmosphere that discourages dialogue and voicing concerns to you. It can look like intimidating people into doing something they don't want to do, either with threatening losing something or exposing that person, or by promising to give them a reward if they'll just do what you say. It can look like being unnecessarily stern with people for no good reason until they do what you want. It can look like coercing others through physical intimidation, but even through overwhelming them with kind of verbal arguments until they just give in. It can look like using your position to get around doing things that others have to do. It can look like using your knowledge or your, your eloquence or experience to make people feel inferior or incompetent so they'll follow your demands. It can look like claiming spiritual authority you don't have, like by saying, oh, I, I prayed about it, or, or God told me, so you can't challenge me. Right? So people can't challenge you without feeling like they're going against God. It can look like appealing to majority rule after getting the majority on your side. Can look like using your circles of influence to pressure someone who's not in those same circles of influence. Those are just a few of the many ways we can domineer and lord authority over others, both inside and outside the church. So, Christian, repent. Repent of any domineering or status seeking and pursue sacrificial service just like Jesus did. You know, that's actually the logic of verse 45 which is another application for us. Verse 45, if you look at it, it grounds our sacrificial service for others in Jesus' sacrificial service for us. It says we're to be a servant of all for or because Jesus came to serve and not be served. That's another shocking thing about this passage. right? It says Jesus is the Son of Man. That's a title from, from Daniel 7 of the one who has authority, all authority, forever. Everyone worships and serves him. Jesus has everything one could ever want, times infinity. Everyone owes him their service. Right? Imagine if you were the most powerful person in the universe. Everyone owed you their service. Like, What would you do? You'd probably have people serve you. You'd serve yourself, but Jesus didn't do that. Paul says it this way in Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you not only look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be held onto for his own advantage but instead he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. You see the same logic that Paul is using? It's Jesus' logic in this passage. He's saying Jesus left us an example, a path to follow. We don't grasp after status for our own advantage, because Jesus didn't grasp after his status for his own advantage. Instead, we humble ourselves and look to others' interests, just as Jesus humbled himself, putting our interests above his. And after that, God says, he will exalt us, just as he did Jesus. 
So you may wonder, well, what does sacrificial service look like in our lives? Well, a, a ton of ways, right? Again, I'm going to give you a few. You can jot some down or listen later. Certainly what it doesn't look like is serving just to be noticed, right? Or just to uh, see what you can get out of it. No, the best example of what it looks like is practicing all the one another commands that are summarized in your church covenant. But it can also look like inviting dialogue and constructive criticism, preferring others whenever possible and not insisting on your own way, listening well to others and not assuming that you automatically know what's best just because you have more knowledge or experience or a higher position. Can look like using your speech as a balm and not as a weapon. You know, serving others also means exhorting and rebuking at times, right? It doesn't always mean just winning people over without a word. Like that's one approach, but sometimes we have to exhort and rebuke, and, and that is a call for elders and pastors from the New Testament. But we always speak the truth in love and for the good of the other, not for our own selfish ends. So friends, pray for such humility and service to not only mark your own life, but all of the lives in this community at WSBC. Well, we've seen how following Jesus means pursuing sacrificial service, not worldly status. But in order to do that, to live this countercultural life where the way up is down, we need spiritual sight. And that's what we see in point number two, spiritual sight verses 46 to 52. So look in verse 46. So we have a change of scene, right? They, they, Jesus and the disciples, they come to Jericho, which is only about 25 kilometers away from Jerusalem. And as they get ready to leave, a blind man sitting by the road, hears Jesus is passing by and he starts crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And we're not told how he knows about Jesus, but it's clear that he believes in him. He's asking for mercy. He calls him son of David, which shows amazing spiritual insight. One writer says it this way, what the blind man lacks in physical sight, he makes up for in spiritual insight. Right? Because up to now, you know, Peter is the only one to call Jesus by a messianic title. You read through the book of Mark, you'll see in Mark 8, Peter is the first to say, you're the Christ, you're the king, Jesus. And son of David is another messianic title, just like Christ. Right? God told David that his son would be king forever. And that son of David is Jesus. Now, it's so important for us to see how this story of the blind man connects to James and John. Right? It's not an accident that these stories are next to each other. See, this blind man is both an illustration of the disciples and a contrast to them. Okay, so he's an illustration of the disciples, and then he's blind. Right? He, he, he's a picture of how the disciples are spiritually blind to Jesus' mission. Matthew's gospel actually says that there are two blind men sitting by the road crying out to Jesus. So it, it makes the comparison even more clear here. We got two disciples, James and John, and two blind men. But for whatever reason, Mark only focuses on one of the blind men named Bartimaeus. So Bartimaeus is an illustration of James and John's blindness, but he's also a contrast, a contrast to them. See, while the disciples are spiritually blind and, and they're seeking worldly status from Jesus, 
Bartimaeus has spiritual sight. He's seeking mercy, which is what Jesus is about to show him. Look at verse 48. Bartimaeus cries out to Jesus. Some people try to silence him, and he cries out even more. Jesus stops and calls him, and Bartimaeus throws off his cloak, right? He leaps up to go to Jesus. And in verse 51, Jesus asks him the exact same question he asked James and John. What do you want me to do for you? See the comparison? But Bartimaeus has a totally different request than James and John had. He says, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And in verse 52, Jesus says, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now, you may be wondering, well, why did Jesus grant Bartimaeus' request and not James and John's? Like, what makes the two requests different? Both were personal requests, right? Both even appear to be selfish requests. Right? James and John asked for glory. Bartimaeus asked for sight. But if you think about it, they couldn't be more different. See, Bartimaeus asked for something that is actually in line with why Jesus came. James and John didn't. Right? Luke 4, you guys have, have worked through the book of Luke. Luke 4 says Jesus came to give sight to the blind, not to give earthly glory to prideful people. In giving Bartimaeus sight, it leads Jesus to getting all the glory, not Bartimaeus, right? Giving James and John worldly glory only glorifies them, not Jesus. You see the difference? These two requests couldn't be further apart. I also think Jesus grants Bartimaeus' request here as a picture of what needs to happen in the disciples' hearts. Right? We know in the Gospels, Jesus often does miracles to make a spiritual point. So the blind gaining physical sight is a picture of our need to gain spiritual sight, to see Jesus with eyes of faith. And that's exactly what Bartimaeus is picturing here, the, the need for Jesus' disciples to gain spiritual sight like Bartimaeus has. Because when we have spiritual sight, Jesus' priorities become our priorities. We see life not as a way to gain worldly status, but to sacrificially serve others. In fact, this whole middle section of Mark, chapters 8 to 10, that I talked about in the intro, it, it's framed by two healings of blind men. One in chapter 8, and this one here in chapter 10. Friends, Mark does that on purpose. Right? In this meaty discipleship sandwich that he gives us, the bread on both sides are stories of blind people gaining sight. To make it crystal clear that none of us can do any of this discipleship stuff that he talks about unless God first graciously opens our spiritual eyes to see Jesus by faith and understand his mission. That Jesus doesn't need our service, we need his Yes, God's kingdom is about us sacrificially serving others, but that's not how we enter the kingdom, right? We don't enter God's kingdom just by trying really hard in the flesh to serve other people. No, to enter God's kingdom, we first need an act of God's grace to open our blind eyes and see Jesus as our Savior. 
Only then will we follow his example of sacrificially serving others, right? Not to earn God's love, but as a response to God's love. And that's exactly what Bartimaeus does. You see, after believing in Jesus and Jesus gives him his sight, he immediately, it says, follows Jesus on the way. Man, what an encouragement Bartimaeus is to us. Think about it. He's not a spiritual rock star. He's not rich or noble or powerful. He's an outcast, a nobody in the world who simply looks to Jesus for mercy, receives it by faith, and then follows him on the way. It's a perfect picture of the simple life of faith. That God's kingdom doesn't belong to the powerful or the righteous. It belongs to those who admit their weakness and their unrighteousness. And simply trust Jesus' righteousness and his strength. And follow him one step at a time through a little while of suffering. And then to eternal glory. So Christian, let me ask you, are are you continuing to look to Jesus for mercy as you follow him on the way? The way of repentance and faith, even in the midst of suffering and trials? Is your spiritual sight leading you to look for ways to serve others, especially in the church? True greatness in the church isn't having a title like elder or deacon. No, true greatness looks like this, faithfully coming every week, Not just thinking, what can I get out of this, but what can I give? It looks like meeting up with others once a week to pray and read the passage for next Sunday. It looks like serving in children's ministry, even if you don't particularly like kids or don't think you're good with kids. It looks like pursuing people who are not like you or who are on the fringes of the church. It looks like thinking of who you can give an encouraging word to this week. Right? There's so much criticism to go around and very little encouragement. It looks like volunteering to do the tasks that no one else wants to do. Those are just some of the many ways that true greatness shows itself in the life of the church. And friend, if you're not a follower of Jesus here, I just want to appeal to you for a second. You need to understand that you are spiritually blind to God because of your sin. Like all of us, you have failed to love God and serve others. Instead, you've only loved and served yourself. You not only need Jesus to give you spiritual sight, but you need God's forgiveness, friend. And for that to happen, it's not complicated. It's simple. You need to cry out to Jesus for mercy. Receive it by faith. Believe that he died for your sin and rose to new life to ransom you. And that's actually what I want to close with. Jesus is our ransom. If you look at verse 45, this is really the heart of this passage, and many say the theme verse of the entirety of Mark's gospel. The word ransom here, it means to buy someone out of bondage, to pay the price to free someone from slavery. That's what Jesus has done for his people. Freed us from slavery to sin by purchasing us with his own precious blood. See, Jesus didn't count his status with God, something to be used for his own advantage. No, he left his throne in heaven, not to be served, but to serve. 
to put himself last, to, to live a sinless life of service to God and others that we've all failed to live, and then to die on the cross to ransom us by drinking the cup of God's judgment for our sin. Be in love, he sweated drops of blood as he prayed in the garden of Gethsemane. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And then in the greatest act of sacrificial service to ever happen, he took the cup filled to the brim with God's holy, furious wrath toward our sin, not his, and he drank it down, every last drop, and turned it over, and he said, it is finished. And he died and was buried, and three days later he rose from the grave as the receipt that our ransom is paid in full. And did you know, as he hung on the cross, who was on either side of him? Two crucified rebels, Mark 14 says, one on his right and one on his left. Same positions John and Jack, uh, James and John asked for. And you know, one of those rebels, he, he didn't ask Jesus for a place of honor or glory. He said, Jesus, remember me in your kingdom. And Jesus said, yes, today you will be with me in paradise. Friends, to be exalted at Jesus' right hand is not to seek earthly status, but to share in his sufferings by taking up your cross and following his example of sacrificial service. And we do that by faith. The spiritual sight that God gives us by his grace that, that leads us to repent of sin and trust in Jesus' sacrificial service for us. You know, those of us who follow Jesus by faith, we've been baptized, right, into his death. Just as Jesus told James and John, it would be we've been baptized into his death, which is pictured in baptism when we join the church. And we do drink his cup, but it's the cup of the new covenant in his blood. Every time we, as a church, celebrate the Lord's Supper, which we're going to do this morning, and I'm sure, as you guys do, at, at SIBC, where I serve, we often sing the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. The last line of that song says, Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. May that always be the cry of our hearts as we look forward to when our spiritual sight turns to physical sight. When our King returns in glory, to exalt us forever in his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for ransoming us with the precious blood of your son, Jesus. God, we thank you for giving us spiritual sight to repent of our sin and trust in Jesus' sacrifice for us. And God, because of that, we pray that as we follow Jesus today and this week, that your spirit would help us put others' interests above our own. To, to sacrificially serve others rather than seeking worldly status or domineering over others. Help us as, a church, as church leaders even to set an example in these things. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.